Hi, I'm Mike Duran, and welcome back to Counterbalance. My guest today is Andrew Hasty. He is the Shadow Defense Minister of Australia. Uh, and we had a fascinating discussion about American strategy, uh, particularly toward China and Australia's role in it. We recorded this event on September 15th following a speech by Andrew Hasty at Hudson. And if you'd like to watch the speech uh, ahead of this conversation, just go to hudson.org. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome to a another episode of Counterbalance, the world's fastest growing podcast. Uh, and I have with me today, Andrew Hasty. He is the shadow defense minister in Australia. Uh, he had a very distinguished military career, um, was an SAS officer. After that, started a political career. And he was the, correct me if I'm wrong, deputy defense minister in the Morrison government. Do I have that right? Andrew? I was the assistant minister for defense. Yes. So a As deputy. Yeah. Assistant minister for defense in the Morrison government. Um, and uh, now you're here at the Hudson Institute uh, for a visit. Um, welcome. And thank you for coming on Counterbalance. Mike, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, you, uh, I didn't tell just now when I was introducing you that you have a reputation also for being a big strategic thinker. So you've had, you've do, you've done the tactical stuff on the ground uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is that right? Is that where you were? Uh, Afghanistan and Jordan for a while, looking at Islamic State. That was my final job with JSOC before I went into politics and a fair bit of you know time in the Indo-Pacific region. Okay, so you have you know the tactical, but you also know the strategic because you were you were on the defense and intelligence committee. That's right. I chaired the intelligence committee for four years, which involved me doing a lot of work on national security legislation, terrorism, foreign interference, espionage, critical infrastructure. It meant that I came to DC. I met with Hipsy and Sissy, and so it was a really good grounding for where I am now. Um, it's a it's a training ground for for ministers basically, um, but I've always been someone who's read a lot. My commandant at the Australian Defence Force Academy, Rear, Rear Admiral James Goldrick, retired. He always said to me, he goes, "You've got to furnish an interior life. You've got to be reading constantly, history, strategy, literature." Um, he said a lot of soldiering is is quite boring sitting around, which is true. Um, so he said, "Go and build an interior life," and that's what I did. And um, I like to get to the essence of a problem, see the big picture. And I'm in politics because I like acting on the big picture. Oh, that's fantastic. So I, I have a, I, here's what I would like to do this episode. Um, I, I want to talk to you mainly about China since Australia is on the front lines. Uh, and I would like to investigate one, what you think China's strategy is globally, but in particularly in the, in the, in the Pacific, what is the West's counter strategy? And who's going to win and why? That's what I'd love to cover in, in just a few minutes. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, very simply, um, I think China's ambitions are revisionist. They want to revise the world order. They want to usurp America's place as the, as the world's leader. All the institutions post-World War II were uh, set up and, and nurtured by the United States. 
Our security in the Indo-Pacific region has been underwritten by US naval power since 1945. I consider that a really good thing. And so they want to revise that current arrangement. And they're also expansionists. They want to expand out into not just the Indo-Pacific, but Europe as well, um, Eurasia, as it were. And what we're seeing is the Belt Road Initiative. We're seeing the deployment of more uh, military power, sea power through their navy into the Indo-Pacific. And um, the risk is, of course, escalation to war. So um, there's some great stuff out there on CCP internal documents. And I think we do have to take what they say at face value. I think Stephen Kotkin, the Princeton professor in his you know, uh, biography of Joseph Stalin, I remember in a podcast with Peter Robinson on Uncommon Knowledge, uh, Kotkin saying, Never heard of that podcast. <laughs> no, I mean, who is Peter? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he said that uh, when he reviewed the, the internal documents of, of the Soviets against the propaganda, it was, it was consistent. They actually believed what they were using in their propaganda. And so when we hear President Xi's public words, we've got, to, we've got to take them at face value. And the risk is if we don't, we actually underestimate how serious they are in pursuing those revisionist and expansionist ambitions. That's such an important lesson. I uh, I work on the Middle East, and one and I I worked uh, both in academia and I worked in government. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was in the White House of George W. Bush, and uh, one of the things that really struck me working in government was how um, our uh, national security apparatus and our di- our diplomats seem to think that um, the publicly available information is not an indication of what's really going on. They, they privilege this, the secret information over, yes. the, over the publicly available. And I, I think that's true because democracies, when we deal with the Europeans, for example, you'll, you'll, you, you, a minister will, you know, uh, will, uh, will meet with another minister uh, from a foreign co- government and, the, and, the, and the, like say an American will meet with a Brit and the Brit will say, I've got a domestic problem. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say the following, but here's what I'm really going to do. Um, and when you get used to working in that kind of environment, then you, you, you think that, oh, the, the domestic stuff is just kind of handled, uh, comfortably by the, by the governments and the, uh, and, and, and you don't have to pay attention to the, to the posturing, what, what looks like posturing publicly. Um, and there's definitely a gap in, authoritarian regimes between what they say publicly and, 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 and what they do. But often the, what they're saying publicly telegraphs what their, what their concerns are. If you read it, if you read it carefully and it gets totally discounted and we, and then we project onto them all kinds of uh, concerns that they don't actually have. Precisely. And, uh, and, and of course the risk is that we, we completely misread the situation as we did early in this century. We thought that economic liberalization would just lead to a a flourishing of democracy. And then President Xi Jinping comes about um, 2012, 2013, and and here we are. Uh, Where where is that liberalization politically that everyone spoke of? Um, So we do have to take them seriously. At, at their word. So, uh, with, with on on that note, now now he's kind of done us a favor, Xi Jinping, because he's he showed his he showed the Chinese hand probably a little earlier than they than they than they should have because there's been there's been a lot of blowback and it started with Australia. That's Australia right. was the uh, was the first country in the West 
to really stand up and say, no, this is, this is completely unacceptable and we're going we're gonna to draw a red line. Um, how do you think, how would you rate the Western response in general? And, um, and, and um, how confident are you that it is going to be successful? Well, it's been very tough because we're so economically linked to China now. A lot of our prosperity in Australia comes from China. We sell a lot of uh, resources into China, iron ore, for example, a lot of iron ore in my state particularly, gas, coal, um, beef, wheat, barley, all the things that were sanctioned by the, the Chinese government. So uh, it's been very difficult for the West to respond coherently and as one because of the economic exposure ex- exposure to, to China. Um, now, as you said, they're making it a little easier for us with their behavior, the strategic coercion, the the um, the way they conduct their wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, when I first started ringing the alarm bell back in sort of 2017, uh, it was very difficult. And now you sort of just sit back and let them do the work for you, um, which is why I'm not opposed to having, for example, the Chinese ambassador come to the National Press Club as he did last month and give a press conference mm-hmm. and actually articulate to the Australian press exactly where they're at. I mean, he makes the best arguments for, for the risks inherent um, to building a, a close partnership with China. You yourself have been banned from China, is that right? That's right. So Senator James Patterson and I, we applied to go on a sponsored trip. China Matters was a, an organisation um, operating in Australia at the time and they would fly MPs over there. We declared, of course. Um, we accepted um, largely to confound our critics and say, hey, you know, we talk to everyone. You mm-hmm. can't just, you know, shout loudly. You've got to also listen. We'll prepare to listen. We applied for our visa and there was a statement issued by the Australian, uh, the Chinese embassy in, in Australia that basically said, until you repent of your beliefs, and they use the word repent, <laughs> you will not be welcome in China. <laughs> yeah, so were- I don't know what a CCP <laughs> baptism looks like, but I ain't having one anytime soon. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, that's hilarious. So they did some good work for you there. Yeah, that's right. Showing who they are. H- how do you rate the the Western response in general? You, you because there is Edward Ludwig has this argument that basically China's heavy handedness is really going to uh, create the coalition against China. Um, but uh, don't you worry a little bit about our uh, our staying power and our will? I do worry about our stay pa- staying power, our will. This is a marathon, and I think it requires whole-of-nation orientation towards the problem. Uh, one of the things that America did during the Cold War was orientate the whole nation towards dealing with the Soviet Union. And I think um, we're up against centralized one-party regimes they they have resolve they can move pretty quickly and um, democracies traditionally only really come together under crisis but we need to act before we get to a crisis um, especially if we want to avoid escalation so at, I think there's a lot of work to be done when you're looking at it from the point of view of uh, Australia where where's the work that, that needs to be done uh, most immediately and what is it? Well, we've done a number of things to protect the integrity of our political system, introducing new foreign interference legislation, espionage legislation. Um, We've introduced a foreign influence transparency scheme, which requires anyone lobbying on behalf of a state actor to uh, register and do so publicly. Uh, We've protected our future 5G network by excluding ZTE and Huawei. We've created a central register of critical assets, critical assets being ports, um, electricity grids, 
um, water assets, you name it, stuff that are, is absolutely essential to our flourishing together. That's now registered and we're, we're making sure that, you know, they're, they're protected from sabotage or any sorts of um, mischief. Um, but now for us, having done all those things, now for us, we also need to look at our defence force and uh, we've got a lot of work to do. We basically need to have a strike capability. As I say, um, to use the bar analogy, we want to be that guy in the bar who gets on with everyone, has a good time, but if you pick a fight with us, we've got a strong right cross and we'll, we'll make it a bad night for you. And uh, so that, you mean, said- that means we need to be able to reach out and, and hold an adversary at risk. And that a strike capability that that means ballistic missiles is that what you're talking about? Yeah, ballistic missiles, submarines that are next generation, which is why we've struck AUKUS because we believe nuclear powered propulsion um, is what we need, with also vertical launch missiles, and uh, so they're they're the capabilities. Um, strike aircraft, you know, latest U.S. Um, strike aircraft B-21s, I think it is. Um, so they're the sorts of things that we're looking at. Currently, Australia doesn't have a ballistic missile capability? Uh, we have missiles, but we have nothing that would uh, do the job in the present strategic situation, which is why we want to partner with the United States through AUKUS and, and work on things like hypersonics. What about the uh, what about the inroads that China is making um, uh, in in the Pacific? There recently was in the news that the uh, the Chin- that the Solomon Islands turned away an American uh, uh, Coast Guard ship, I believe it was, uh, and uh, because of their relationship with the Chinese, the Chinese are building ports there. The expectation is those ports could very easily be turned into naval bases very soon. Um, what what can the United States and, and Australia do about that sort of threat? Well, as you know, those those Pacific islands are absolutely critical to our security. We've always enjoyed long-standing friendships with those those island nations, and I think we've neglected those relationships. That's the first thing I'd say. So we need to redouble our efforts diplomatically. Um, I think we need to invest more in in those countries, provide concessional loans without the sort of depth trap diplomacy strings that, that, that come with BRI loans. And uh, otherwise, America and Australia, if China is able to establish deep water ports in some of those countries, they could cleave us operationally. So sure, we could have a strategic relationship, but um, there's a lot of underwater submarine cables that run through that area. Um, and we could have potentially a, a naval China, China base not far from us. Help me, help me understand the geography here. When you say that they, they could cleave us, you, they mean they, there, there could be a cleavage between the United States and, and Australia. What's the, what's the critical geography to keep, a, to, uh, to keep a bridge between the two of us? So that line straight through the Pacific Islands from, from, from North Queensland up through the Pacific towards your West Coast. Um, that's why... In World War II, the Japanese uh, went after places like Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, and that's why it was such an existential threat for us in World War II. Now, that was done by military force, uh, but what we're up against is a very sophisticated approach from the Chinese government using all sorts of different inducements, financial, of course, um, investments in, in some of the big infrastructure projects, and then loans. Now, the, the challenge is that all looks good up front, but as we've seen with Sri Lanka, um, they couldn't pay down the debt on that port and they've had to relinquish their port to the Chinese. So I think what we've got to show is that we're willing to to work together, democratic states, and provide 
financial assistance to to emerging and developing economies. Why do you think we were asleep at the wheel? Because it really, I, I'm, I'm, the United States is as as much or more to blame than Australia on this. I'm sure. Why do you think we were so asleep at the wheel that all of a sudden a country like Solomon Islands is going to say no to an American ship? Look, I think we just took things for granted. I, don't, I think we got lazy. I think, uh, you know, when you've enjoyed good relationships for a long period, you can you can forget friendships. It's true of politics. Um, you know, my life is busy and, you know, sometimes I've, I've neglected my friends and I think it's true at the strategic level as well. When everything's going fine, you don't check in on people as much. And uh, China is, again, they're revising the world order and they're very aggressively out there um, seeking to usurp some of these friendships that we have. How solid is the um, consensus, uh, or is there a consensus in Australia about the um, the need to confront China and the need to work closely with the United States to do it? I think there is great concern, and polling reveals this in the Australian people about what sort of long-term strategic challenge China poses to our security, but also that of our neighbours. And China is undergoing the biggest peacetime military buildup since the Second World War. And every time something happens, like we saw just recently in Taiwan, where they're firing volleys of missiles over over the Taiwan Strait, that reinforces in the Australian people's minds that we have a big problem. So I think there is support there. Uh, I think, of course, we're, and I made this clear in my speech, we're undergoing a pretty tough time economically and culturally, and that can distract us from these, these, these threats. So we've got a lot of work to do, and that's why I'm here in the U.S. building strategic relationships. Um, you know, giving a friend's perspective. I quoted that proverb. You know, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Can be trusted while a, a friend multiplies kisses. I want to be frank with American legislators and say you've got work to do, and we need you to be active in the region. Yeah, the speech you're referring to is a speech you just gave here at the yeah. at the Hudson Institute. The United States, um, to say we're polarized, uh, you know, internally is. Uh, is an understatement. And a lot of that polarization is now reflected in our attitude toward foreign policy. It's got to be unnerving uh, when you're, when you're secure, when you're on the front lines like Australia and your, uh, and your security is dependent on the United States to look back and, uh, and see the, the, the disarray that the U S has at home. That's right. And sure, we want to be sovereign and we want to have our own defense capability. But in the end, the, as I said, uh, great powers do grand strategy. The rest of us, middle and small powers, respond. Um, at that Singaporean official who said, when it comes to power and influence, we are price takers. And so it comes down to the fundamental- We are price takers? We are price takers. So the fundamental question is- I'm sorry, I don't know what a price taker is. As in, we don't get to set the terms. Oh, we, we accept the price that's given. That's right. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and China and the US are great powers and they're- your grand strategy is going to shape the world order. And so when we're, we're, when we're looking at the two countries, we're wondering, okay, who's, who's going to prevail? And, of course, you know where I sit, but a lot of other countries are thinking, mm, do we need to hedge our bets here? You know, as I mentioned to you, I used to work in the White House, mm. and I, I came away with a couple of perceptions, one about Australia in particular, um, and one just in general about how things work in the White House. One is that, the, the first is that, Australians have this amazing ability or amazing uh, capability that I, I don't think they're aware of when it comes to influencing the United States. And that is when an American sits down with an Australian, uh, an American feels like he is sitting with, the, uh, with a fellow American. Uh, 
It's remarkable. And it's, I, I, I don't know what, I don't know how to expl explain it. Uh, it doesn't really exist with any other people to the same degree, I don't think. It's certainly not with the Brits. When you sit down with the Brits, you know you're talking to an alien, uh, <laughs> to a foreigner. Uh, the, the, uh, um, and that's one thing. And the, and the second is America can be deeply influenced, deeply, by, by smaller powers smaller powers that are capable of, of thinking strategically. Mm. So I agree with you 100% that small powers can't do grand strategy, but small powers can help a great power do grand strategy. Because, you know, if you're, one, one of the things that I, I learned when I was in the White House is that, I don't know, I don't know what number, 65, 70, 75% of all meetings in the White House are completely useless. the 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 entire <laughs> the entire purpose of the meeting is so that the person who came in to have the meeting can go outside and say, "I had a meeting in the White House." Yeah, and and we talked about really important things. Yeah, and uh, I, there I, there there was one I won't say which country. The first time I sat in a high level meeting in the White House with a it was representative of a Middle Eastern country. I I, I can't. I'd come from academia. And I was so excited to be engaged in high-level <laughs> diplomacy. And uh, uh, it was with the Na uh, Steve Hadley, National Security Advisor, and a okay. National Security Advisor from a Middle Eastern country. I was literally falling asleep by the end of the meeting. <laughs> and I, it became, in my mind, a symbol of the worst kind of, high, of White House meeting. And there are a lot of those like that. There are very few countries that come in and actually talk to you about strategy. Most of them come in and they have an ask. Yes, they, and they, they they'll try to dress it up as strategy, but they want they want one or two things. Some just come in, to, like I say, to have the meeting. The number of countries that will come in and actually exchange ideas with you is very very small. They're all, they're almost invariably democracies, although not only, uh, and they often are the smaller countries. For example. Bahrain. Bahrain has a lot of influence on the United States. Why? Because it's part of the, it's in the Saudi orbit. For whatever reason, the Saudis are not, never open up and talk about, you know, what's in their hearts, what's, what's concerning them. The Bahrainis understand the Saudis and they will come in and they will explain them to you and then explain how we're, what we're doing wrong in the region and so forth. They're, so they're interpreters of the larger Arab, Arab sphere. I think Australia could play that role for the United States. In the, I mean, I'm sure it is, but I, I think it, if it was aware that it had this capacity, it could, it, it could punch way above its weight in terms of determining the, the grand strategy of the United States. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I have seen this, um, having worked with US special operations, the US military over a fairly extended period, whilst I was with the SAS over, over five years. And I must say that they... The US, our US partners paid attention to us. Um, they liked our insight because we have to do more with less. And um, I think that's also true at the, at the strategic level. You know, Mike, I emphasize that friendship. I mean, that's a genuine friendship. Mike will come to me and say, hey, what's your- Mike Gallagher. Mike Gallagher. Yeah. yeah. What's your perspective on this? And uh, there's an informality that we bring as well. You mentioned the Brits. We love our British cousins, of course. Um, and I, I love them too, but I didn't mean to insult them. I'm, no, no, I'm no. married. I'm married to a Brit. So, oh, there you so, go. Yeah, but but uh, she's not an American. Yeah, and and so I think that informality as well is is a great asset of ours, and particularly when it comes to talking to to Americans, who you guys can be quite formal. I got to be frank with you. So uh, yes, I, that's why I came here because I wanted to send a message that I think the U.S. needs to, to lift its game and do more in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, you need to have a grand strategy that will survive congressional and presidential electoral cycles. Um, that, now, that seems obvious, but 
Okay, now, was, we're, now we're getting down to brass tacks. What what should the U.S. be doing? Well, and that's why I raised the the point about the sort of the cultural chaos that we're seeing across the West. Uh, we need to get our own house in order, and then we need to start thinking about how we deal with these deal with these challenges. And you know, for me, that that means rethinking politics. I'm straddling massive change at the moment in my own electorate. And um, I'm sure it's the same in the US and the UK. We've had a conga line of prime ministers, uh, you know, in the UK and Australia. There's there's a lot of disruption going on at the moment. And people like me, I'm, I'm about to turn 40. Our task is to reinterpret the challenges for our time and, and come up with solutions. Let, let, me, uh, let me take you out of the Pacific briefly, if I may, mm-hmm. since I do do the Middle East and, and, and you were on the, the Parliamentary Intel Committee. Can we talk about Iran a little bit? Sure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm branching out here as well. Just don't want to declare that. Okay. So I have two questions about Iran. Uh, one is Australian policy and, uh, well, both of them about Australian policy, really. The first is about the JCPOA and, and, and the Iran deal. What's, what's your party's position on the, on the Iran deal? I don't think we have a formal uh, position on it, except that I think it was, um, well, I'm speaking personally now. I welcomed it getting knocked on the head. Ah, good. Uh, yeah, I like to hear that. So you're 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 in friendly territory here then. That's but, right. But uh so uh the US, I mean right at the while we're talking the the effort to revive to resuscitate the corpse of the JCPOA seems to be failing. And by all accounts there's no uh there's no plan B. I had a very very senior uh Middle Eastern official told me just a, a day ago, there is absolutely no plan B. All of our discussions with the Biden team s- suggest that there's no thinking beyond the, the return to the JCPOA. Is this something that is of concern in Australia at all? Uh, our concerns are more immediate, but the last thing we'd like to see is is a nuclear-capable Iran. And um, obviously I'm a supporter of Israel, Um I've had some really good discussions with the Israelis, and I'm, I'm I definitely share their view that you should always take the threats of your enemies more seriously than the promises of your friends. My, um, I, I believe that Australia and Israel are going to be the two closest allies of the United States in the in the coming century, um, precisely because of this disarray here in in the U.S. That we are. Um, we are pulling back from the world, whether, whether it's going to be a Democrat or Republican in the White House, we're going to pull back. How far we pull back remains to be seen, but we're going to pull back some for sure. And why is that? Um, because, just because they're the, the uh, American people don't understand what our role in the world is. Um, and I think um, our American leadership doesn't understand what our role in the world is. And it's going to take a little while Mm. And we are polarized domestically and foreign policy has become part of the polarization. I mean, in, in my part of the world, I mean, the Middle East, there are now Republican countries and Democratic countries, right? Iran, they're a Democratic country or a country that Democrats want to run after. It's the, it's not the party of peace, but it's the, it's the, um, it's the party for diplomacy. Right. Uh, 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 Saudi Arabia, Republican country. So uh, the, as long as the Americans see the world, they look at the map of the world and they see and 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 they see Democrat and Republican. That's a that's a disaster for a coherent strategy, I think. And you look at these countries. If you're the country like the UAE, 
they're getting whipsawed. Every, uh, you know, each administration comes in and demands in something entirely different of them, uh, re- reacts to them on the, on the basis of how they, uh, how they behaved with the predecessor in the, in the, you know, if, if you got, if you're the UAE and you were close to Donald Trump, then when the, when the Biden team comes in, they have a bias against you immediately. Yeah. You can't do business like this. And so they, they, they start to hedge, uh, because they just, they, they, they can't rely on the United States. The, you know, the, the Iranians attacked the UAE and on uh, January 17th of this year uh, was a very sophisticated attack. Ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and attack drones all together. And they foiled the, the defensive systems of the UAE. You barely heard a peep about it in Washington. That should have been a wake-up call. And yeah. that's a major, it's a major issue for the United States when, yes. when, a, when, when Iran has these kind of capabilities and can do that. So the, these countries, they feel left out in the cold. Um, and, and that's not going to go away. The question is, can other countries step up and, and, and fill the breach at least somewhat? And you can see that in the case of the Middle East, Israel has uh, Israel can't uh, obviously can't fill the U.S.'s shoes, but it can it has it has capabilities and it can step up, and it can also help inform the Americans about the the, the mistakes that they're making. I think Australia can play that kind of role in in in, in East Asia. Yeah, uh, there aren't that many countries that can do this. No, no, that's right. And I, I want to make clear that you know we talked about great powers, grand strategy, smaller middle powers responding to those grand strategies. That's not to say middle and small powers are passive. We have an active role to play. And I think Australia and, and other countries can really help the United States. What we're after, though, I think is, is leadership. And the only two options available are the United States or the People's Republic of China. And uh, to quote Shakespeare, I love a good Shakespeare quote. It's from Henry V. When lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. And so the U.S. is the gentler. Sorry, can you can you say anything? I like this already, but I I, I need to listen carefully. So so Henry V is upbraiding some of his soldiers for their behaviour as they move through France, and he says, um, "When lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, and lenity means." Um, Leniency? Yeah, yeah. That's the origin, a, a friendlier approach. Yeah. When lenity and cruelty play for a kingdom, the gentler gamester is the soonest winner. Uh-huh. And so I want the US to be the soonest winner mm-hmm. uh, because y- you take a friendlier approach. Um, and a lot of people would rather have a US-led global order rather than a PRC-led global order. I'm sure an American-led global even even at our worst – we're yeah. going to be the the amazing thing about the Chinese is that they 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 really only have two channels or two modes. One is happy panda win win, and and the other is uh, sit down, shut up, do as I say. You know, there's no <laughs> uh, there's no in between. And we saw that with Australia. That's the amazing thing. And so once they felt that they had you in their clutches, then they started giving orders. And then we started pushing back, and then the whole relationship went off the rails. We can't get a high level meeting, um, government to government. So that's that's a that's a real advantage for us if we're in the game. If you're in the game, <laughs> but we have, we can't win if we're not in the game. Yeah, and this is the the, the challenge of democracy. Uh, it's in crisis that we come together, um, but up until that point, it can be quite messy. And so I'm prepared to to live with the messiness. Of course, that's the that's what freedom is, and we want to have those debates. But what I'm really concerned is with. James Kirst's thesis back in 1994, the clash within, uh, 
that's coming to bear. You you should tell our listeners that this is James Kurth, who's a who was a professor at Swarthmore, responding to uh, to the clash of civilization by Samuel Huntington. Yeah, and he said the clash, the real clash, will happen within the West itself, and he was referring to the the battle already at that time within the universities. Um, the battle between the sort of the postmodernists who were very skeptical of the West and traditional values and, and beliefs, epistemology, all that sort of stuff, the deconstructionists, um, and then the pre-moderns who were also skeptical of, of the Enlightenment project, which was modernity. And what we've seen over the last 30 years since he wrote that article, I think, is, is that article, uh, that, that, that argument that was going on in universities now mainstream. And that's why we're seeing the polarization. And, and both sides of the debate, the pre-modern and the post-modern, are skeptical of classical liberalism, which is the basis of our Western democracies. Well, uh, Andrew Hasty, thank you very much for a, a very engaging uh, conversation about uh, America's role in the world and uh, the uh, challenges that uh, Australia confronts on the front lines with uh, China. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. I hope to see you back here soon. So, same here. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.